Hello everybody, this is Paul Miller, and you're listening to the Tuna Town Talks podcast, located in Venice, Louisiana, the fishing capital of the world. Hello everybody, welcome to a, another episode of Tuna Town Talks. Um, today I have a, a really uh, special guest, his name is uh, Angelos Apetos, is that how you say your name? That's correct, Apetos. Yeah. Apetos, Apetos. Everybody gets my last name wrong, so <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> and uh we're over here at the uh where where are we at? Tell we're us. at the we're at the University of Southern Mississippi's Thad Cochran Marine Aquaculture Center. Okay. Uh it is a uh little over 100,000 square feet of dedicated space for marine aquaculture. And uh to let your audience know what aquaculture is basically in in just simple terms, aquaculture is the growing of marine organisms. Um not specific to fish because we grow more things than just fish here uh, or we do research on more things than just fish but in general terms aquaculture is the culture of a marine organism you okay. know in water awesome awesome and just to let everybody know uh kind of where you're from um you're from greece is that right right That's actually i'm from a greece my culture is greek i'm from a small island called cyprus it's in the southeast mediterranean Really? Um, it's a small island, um, and then uh, I came to the U.S. Uh, over 20 years ago. I have a uh, undergraduate degree in marine biology, and then I earned my graduate degree here at USM uh, with this aquaculture program that we have here. So I stayed here since. Right. So I've been at USM a little over 20 years, um, working uh, with and for this. Uh, aquaculture program wow wow and you told me like uh, just uh you know kind of get people uh to get to know you a little bit like i'm a diver and you you're also a diver mm-hmm. right like did you did you do a lot of free diving and stuff cl- growing up over in greece or i did there's a lot of opportunity there because the water is crystal clear yeah it is now, man i was just thinking i'm thinking like man greece is beautiful like, i had to been awesome growing up diving in, in greece it huh? is and a lot of people do it and you know uh because there's been a lot more interest now in uh free diving uh spearfishing specifically uh they changed the regulations uh to make sure that uh you're not using scuba while you're while you're spearfishing it has to be free diving uh that means you take a breath of air yeah and uh where you hunt fish is based on how long you can keep your breath yeah uh not uh you know that was a that was a big motivator for me when i was growing up um i wanted to travel and spearfish and just about the only place in the world that you can scuba dive and spearfish is in america which is kind of strange that we you know we we grow up in a time where we start scuba diving before free diving yeah yeah. (laughs) it's kind of different right but uh uh, and i'm a scuba instructor you know scuba diving has um limitations um i feel that are you know, you have a finite amount of time that you can hunt. Yeah. It's like, imagine if you go out in the woods and you can only hunt for 45 minutes. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's how long the day is, right? Yeah. Uh, scuba diving is about the same. The deeper you go, the more time, the less time you have on the bottom. You know, I'm an instructor. Uh, when I used to teach a lot of scuba diving, 12 years or older, you can learn how to dive. Yeah. Um, you know, I have an almost 12-year-old. I would not trust my <laughs> son with a spear gun, a scuba tank, uh, <laughs> down at like 100 feet, uh, trying to pull like a 20-pound grouper out of a hole. Right, there. right, right. But uh, I did it. You know, times were different then. Uh, <laughs> free diving gave me a lot more opportunities to hunt and learn about how I was going to hunt and be selective about my hunting that I was going to do. So, you know, the waters there are crystal clear and they're warm. So you can do a free dive down to, say, 60 to 100 feet, 
and then your next depth can be, you know, 30 feet, and you hang around there for a little bit because uh, you're starting to target maybe some different fish, and then you go right back down to like 100 feet, yeah, and you can target now a different fish yeah. because you're in a different area. You get back up on your boat, you move on to the next area, you get in your car, you drive on to the next location, you yeah. put your gear on, you're back in the water. Yeah, there's definitely uh, I've I've definitely had the same th- theory as to like sometimes if you have a boat full of free divers and a boat full of scuba divers. What they catch, it might not be much much different, or the free divers will probably have more. Yeah, because <laughs> they spend more time out. in the yeah. water. You can and spend more time in the water. And you get to, um, I feel like the, the, the fish react to you, you know, in a different way when you're first going down. They almost see you as, as like an, another mammal, like another dolphin or a, or a turtle or something, you know what I mean? Oh, they see you as food. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or food, right? We have a lot yeah. of tricks up our sleeves over there because the water is crystal clear. So a fish, like a grouper... Uh, or any of the five, six grouper species that we target over there, they see you, they'll stand out of the uh, little hole or den, and they'll stare at you. And when you get close enough to where you can take a shot, they'll run right back in there, and they'll go sideways and upside down in the hole. You flash your light in there, you can't see them. you got to know where to look, right? Yeah. So, uh, But the other thing is, um, if you're hunting some of the um, carnivorous fish, that are free swimming, like say the jacks that we have over there, like the amber jacks. Uh, there's things that you can do to get the fish to come closer to yeah. you. Yeah. Like you got to be able to and grunt underwater. It's harder underwater. to do that whenever you got bubbles and stuff going, right? Correct. Well, <laughs> the bubbles make a lot of noise. Yeah. You don't hear the bubbles. You hear yourself breathing. When you when you hear yourself breathing, uh, and our ears are more adapted to hear noises in air than they are to hear in water and the noises in water are much more amplified because of the density of water, the fish can hear you breathing through the lateral line. <laughs> yeah, As the soon whole as you time, move yeah. something, you displace water, and you got a fish close to you, they're going to feel you, they're going to know you're there. Yeah. So you got to get creative, like no. uh, sit on the bottom and just hold your breath where <laughs> uh, only your heart is beating, and then when a fish gets close but not close enough to take a shot, then you grunt a little bit, yeah. you grab some of the sand and you throw it up, yeah. So let it fall down kind of slowly, and those fish become curious. So they'll come in, and they'll stare at you, yeah. and you may have a one-second or even less than a second opportunity to take a shot, and yeah. then that's it, <laughs> right? It's you got to go back up to the surface and then go back down there. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a – it's really cool free diving and, and getting to mess with the fish psychology the whole time. And, like, I know, like, hunting wahoos, like, it's a predator-type fish. You can't yeah. even, like, look at them in their eyes, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because that's not a normal thing for them. And learning those things over the course of a lifetime and you kind of – you feel like you get to know the fish a little bit, you know, as a species, a little bit better. What they what to expect, you know. Cool. But um, yeah. So uh, what what at what age did you s- decide to move to uh, the states? Well, uh, I was already uh, I had done a, a mandatory military service where I'm from. So after that, um, I decided to uh, get in a degree program. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually started off in Hawaii. Uh, I picked Hawaii for my marine biology degree because. Um, I'm one of those guys that can't stay too far away from water for some reason or another. I'm sure uh, yeah. you and your audience can relate to that <laughs> between fishing, diving, spear fishing, and just the view of the water. Yeah. Um, so I picked uh, Hawaii for my undergraduate degree. Um, you know, I, that was, oh God, I was, I'm almost 50 now. I was like <laughs> 21. 
then. Wow. Um, so, wow. Uh, and I stayed, cool. I lived in Hawaii. I worked there at an aquaculture facility for three and a half years. And then uh, when I came to South Mississippi, I, it was uh, under a collaborative project to uh, advance red snapper aquaculture and specifically to advance red snapper reproduction. Mm-hmm. So we had a reproductive physiologist that was in Hawaii that under contract, we would come here, go collect red snapper, put them in boxes and send them to Hawaii to be spawned under controlled conditions or do research on how to spawn Gulf of Mexico red snapper under controlled conditions. And then we had to raise the juveniles to a size that we could tag them and then release them back into the wild in Mississippi waters. Wow. So the only thing that was coming here from Hawaii was the technology, Mm. the information. And then we applied that information to work that we were doing at the Gulf Coast Research Lab, which is part of the University of Southern Mississippi. In 2004, the federal grant expired on that project, and then the state stepped up uh, and funded the project to continue the work. So we actually did the majority of the releases of Red Snapper under the state funding than under the federal funding. But we did we laid down the foundation, the work, the research. Right. So we knew what we needed to do under the federal funding. So all that, you know, work that was done in Hawaii as far as aquaculture and everything mm-hmm. was then brought here Correct. to try and facilitate what was then Red Snapper and that's kind of as we'll talk about, you know, more and more, it's kind of transformed into speckled trout and now right. triple tail and Mm-hmm. And it's it seems to like a lot of the same stuff you get you're using right the same technology and a lot of things are very different right absolutely so we're using we're using traditional technology yeah. uh, that either we developed or uh, other peers have developed at other academic institutions or research facilities and then we re- either refine that technology or improve on it because it's like a car engine you know. Um, when Henry Ford built the first Ford, (laughs) you can't expect that there won't be five other companies a hundred years later that won't be building engines or building automobiles. And that could be better, right? (laughs) Exactly. So now we have, uh, more technology, but we also have improvements Mm -hmm. that we can apply to traditional techniques and technologies, uh, to produce either the same species of fish or produce different species of fish. And I can tell you why. You know, a lot of people ask us, why is culturing fish so important? Well, it's a healthier source of protein. Um, And it's also a way that states like the state of Mississippi uh, and the Gulf of Mexico states can generate a a lot of revenue. There's a lot of opportunity in aquaculture. Aquaculture is the fastest growing sector of the blue economy. There's more people now interested on how to grow the oysters, um, clams, mussels, blue crabs, um, and then all the species of fish than ever in the past. And there's all different sorts of ways that you can grow fish. The other thing about culturing a fish is that it costs less money and you use less of the natural resources to culture a pound of fish as opposed to a pound of, say, cattle. When you guys go to the grocery store, how many different types of beef do you see at the grocery store? I mean, it's like one. I mean, there's a lot of different 
like types. I mean, there's one beef though, right? Exactly. There's one. Beef. It's cut. It's different cuts of the same animal, animal right, right? Right, right? At right. the end of the day, beef is a beef. cow. Yeah, it's cow. How many different types of poultry do you see at the supermarket? Chicken or turkey, right? Chicken, turkey. Maybe if you go to some of the uh, boutique, like small time, small town supermarkets, like. Maybe Louisiana will have quail or dove or something like that, or they have a Cornish hen. Mm -hmm. yeah. But at the end of the day, they are just birds, and for the most part, the majority of those birds are going to be chicken. Yeah, yeah. Different cuts again. Mm -hmm. Now go to the seafood market. Yeah. <laughs> and be frank about you know what you see there, because you're going to start with your pelagics. They're all fish, right? To some mm -hmm. extent, but. They look different. The color of the muscle is different. Like a grouper is a white meat. A tuna is a red meat. Red dense meat, white flaky meat. You know, exactly. There's so many different. Yeah. And even though you have all the different cuts, it's a much more diverse uh, a set of options for the consumer. And it's healthier protein that costs less to produce for the species that are cultured. Mm. Unfortunately... So you're saying the amount of feed and the food and the Correct. space, so everything is should be is way better. A, a, a cow has to eat, you know, two and a half, three, four, five times, uh, five pounds of food to get one pound of meat out. Right, right. That's a lot of grass. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you have these big ranchers, and you have to feed cows a lot of hay and all that kind of stuff. What if I told you that? Let's just say redfish. Mm -hmm. That. An 18-inch redfish, you put a pound and a half of food to get a pound and a half of fish back. Right. That makes sense. Or a right? pound and a half of food to get a pound of fish back. So the conversions are much, much different. Mm -hmm. And So where does that food come from, though? Because fish eat fish. So, so like, fish eat fish. That's right? Right. <laughs> and again, you know, uh, the feeding of marine finfish has evolved over the years where Harvesting fish to feed fish is not now the norm. There's yeah. plant protein that they incorporate in the diets of marine finfish, so they make them more sustainable. You know, your food cost for aquaculture is 50% or more of the total cost of producing the animal itself. Mm -hmm. So creating a fi financially sustainable technology is the target here. And if there's an alternative source of protein, that may come from, say, krill mm -hmm. or cultured shrimp. Right. That cultured shrimp, shrimp are herbivores. Right. They'll feed on uh, pellets that so are produced like from plant protein. Culture the whole ecosystem. You'd have to start, guess, from the plant, get the shrimp to eat the plants, and then the... the Correct. Yeah, feed the there's all different kinds of ways you can do this, but there's only, them. realistically, one way you can feed a cow. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have to feed them corn. I mean, I guess they start to feed them all kind of stuff. To you utilize a lot of land. Yeah. Lot of if land, right. you if you have um, a, a herd of cattle that that produces, say, you know, twice the amount of herd mm -hmm. in a year in terms of offspring, how much space would you need for everybody now to eat and right. grow? Right. How much time does it take to grow a cow? from a juvenile to an adult cow for harvest, for example. How much milk can you realistically get out of the cow? Right, right. Makes sense. And just just while we're on the talk, topic of food for farms, I've talked about this before mm -hmm. in one of my podcasts. Um, 
but you know it seems to me that on the fish cleaning tables there's a lot of waste mm-hmm. you know there's th- and I, this kind of first came to my attention at like a documentary that you know on all these fish farms they actually have gone and killed mass amounts of herring to in, in turn feed the fish and it mm-hmm. seems counterproductive because eventually you're just going to deplete that stock of fish right correct and you're absolutely correct so it you is have this problem but uh I can tell you as recreational anglers and I mean just in Venice alone there's so much waste that mm-hmm. comes off the dock you see mm-hmm. all these fish getting clean do you, do you think that there could ever be a system that we could make to try and uh, you know let all these carcasses be put into pellets or something like that, so that they could be used for fish. I mean, that to me would, because I would feel good about you know my carcasses, and then in turn you guys. I mean, that stuff should just be being used in some type of way. It's good fish, right. you know what I mean. I mean, um, in a in an area like uh, you know, and I'm glad you used Venice as an example where there's a lot of recreational angling and people don't want to take their fish home and clean it they have somebody there cleaning it for them there's an unusual amount of waste that goes in the water but that waste is not it's waste because you don't use it but trust me when that thing goes in the water it doesn't stay waste too long now if you had an aquaculture facility and you had a processing plant of your product that came next to it there wouldn't be as much of the same waste that you classify as waste a lot of the companies aquaculture companies that are actually culturing and processing their own product find different ways that they can have secondary processing or they sell their waste to a processor that can take that waste and incorporate it into cat food or uh, more fish food, uh, mostly for the aquarium industry. Or they have ingredients, for example, uh, in South Mississippi, just a few years ago, there was a company that was purchasing the shrimp waste from the shrimp processing plants and they were extracting the chitin that's the product that creates the shell of shrimp and they were selling it to companies that can incorporate it in uh, products that improve bone structure for humans or for uh, pet food and stuff like that and they were able to minimize waste so not all of that shrimp waste was going back in the water yeah but for seafood there's not a lot of waste what happens to all the cattle waste yeah, I know, right? What no. happens to all those bones and stuff all like that? All the bones, right? And stuff, all yeah. the all the fat, the the skin, yeah. the skin of the cattle that comes from a processing plant is repurposed for something else. Yeah. And there's different ways in the agricultural sciences, and our society has evolved to take those products and make secondary products and repurpose some of that waste that comes from a facility that its purpose is to produce large amounts of food or process. Right a product like that for human consumption. Now, think about this for fish. (coughs) Where I come from, and when my parents came to visit me here, um, I went out, and I'm an avid fisherman, and I caught some speckled trout. I caught enough to feed, you know, four adults. My kids were still very young, and they wouldn't, you know, touch a fish. When I put a knife on that fish to pull the fillet off, uh, my mother almost stabbed me with that knife, (laughs) right? She didn't want me to touch anything, anything about that fish. The only thing that she wanted to do was remove the gills, even the scales of the trout because they're so fine. She said, leave it as it is, and she gutted and gilled the fish. Mm-hmm. And then she cooked the fish. Yeah. Now, how much waste did you think we had out no of that waste, meal? Right? <laughs> Talk about not even the bones were barely wasted yeah. because my dad then grabs the bones 
and puts them in a pan and deep fries them to a really high heat and then you can sit and eat the bones like french fries <laughs> and i showed him that when he came to visit me when i was in hawaii a filipino lady would do that with every fish that we would give her really we would leave the table and there would be zero waste nothing left nothing right and i think that's exactly what i meant like i've you know i've i've traveled a little bit i went to like thailand and vietnam mm -hmm. and particularly that's you know you see, you go to their fish markets and they eat all of it. Like yeah. everything is getting eaten. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they have very little freezers and stuff over there. They so don't even ice their fish. Yeah, yeah. They, they have never to make it to the icing. Yeah, <laughs> Every, they, everything disappears. And and to me, that makes so much sense. Why they value it so much? Because fresh fish is really the value. Like Absolutely. fresh fish. Like people want to go fill their freezer up with all these fish, man. And that's it's it. You don't really it's it's not the same it's hard to the people so many people just catch fish and they put it in the freezer and right. they never really learn to value the 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 fresh the fresh thing of yeah. it and i guess that's what i mean about like waste is because you know in a culture like yours or like when i go to vietnam or wherever i've been they you would never just see you know whole tuna carcasses yeah. you know by the hundreds getting tossed back into right. the river oh god you that would be I mean? a, that would be a, like <laughs> a, 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 a cultural crime where i'm from <laughs> no it would be in the i mean i'm talking the collars yep. the, the bellies of these mm -hmm. fish they're all just getting thrown back yeah. into the water and it's somewhat of a normal thing down there and you yeah. become used to it but it's like i don't know you know, that's why I value whenever I travel and you see, like, watermen like yourself, mm -hmm. like, really value the fish like that. It's yeah, no, something look, that we're lacking in our culture. <laughs> if anybody has any questions on how to process uh, waste that they have, well, first, you know, it's beyond me. And I can understand that, you know, for the charter boat fleet everywhere in the United States and, uh, and the world, people that come that they want to fish, they want to take as much fish with them because... They don't know when the next opportunity yeah. is. Like the things that you and I uh, yeah. and the Gulf of Mexico states or communities take for granted. You don't have to take that much fish every time you fish because there will inherently be another opportunity for you to fish, right? Yeah. But envision if you live in, you know, inland. Yeah, in Oklahoma somewhere, yeah. And <laughs> then, you know, you have bass, catfish, perch, all the freshwater fish, but you really have a craving for the marine fish, like yeah. the trout, the snapper. Mm -hmm. And they're too expensive to buy at the market there because they're not cultured. They have to be harvested, processed, yeah. shipped up there. And it's not fresh. You know and you know it's from. fresh because you caught it, right? Right, right? Then I can see how uh, some of the public wants to take as much fish as they can. I give a lot of the fish that I catch away yeah. when I catch more than what I feel I need to eat. Yeah. And it, it's a great feeling for me to be able to share the crop of my labor yeah. uh, with family and friends, you know, mm -hmm. my, I got a neighbor. Yeah, it's he a cuts, huge part of it. It's a yeah. huge part of our culture for sure. I mean, I got a neighbor. So. He cuts my yard, right? Yeah. Uh, I have a lawnmower, but he's retired and he cuts my yard. Uh, I've never seen him, you know, on a boat or he's never said, I'm going to go fishing today and come home with a cooler with some fish. So, even if I'm not doing anything, I'll grab my kids and we'll go and we'll catch some white trout. Am I going to eat 20 white trout? No. <laughs> but you know what? I'll clean some of them and give him, you give know, him all him, the yeah. white trout. And then he keeps cutting my yard and he's very appreciative. There's all kinds of creative ways. And uh, I really enjoy doing that. And uh, to be honest, sometimes when I fish, I don't, I don't fish for me. I fish for 
somebody else, my mother-in-law, <laughs> my sister-in-law, yeah. my neighbor, you know. <laughs> That's what it turns into, Pay off right? favors and, uh, you know, uh, I never go too long where I don't have anything, any at least like a handful of fillets that I have in like a vacuum seal bag with a date of when I caught it and what fish it is that I can give to somebody if they say, oh, man, I haven't, I've never had a mangrove snapper before. What is that? Right, what right. does it taste like? Well, I'll have maybe a snapper mm-hmm. that I caught, you know, maybe a couple of months ago, and I'll be like, here, try it. Right, right. You know? Yeah. It does seem to me like, uh, you know, I, I just want people to know to value the freshness of the fish. Like, I just, uh, since the hurricane and all, you know, I've been running a few trips out of here to Biloxi. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things I like to do in Venice is they'll cook your fish for you, and I'll bring it up there. And, like, because people don't even know to try it you know what i mean you got to right. kind of show them what cool is right. in a sense right. like they don't even know that this is the best way to eat fish until they yep. actually try it it got off the you know thing that day mm-hmm. and so I, I went over to the blind tiger in biloxi and i had uh it was a group of 11 people and i had them cook up all the fish yeah and i had four or five of them tell me that that was the best fish they ever had absolutely Why and they would have and even if i wouldn't have done that they would have got you know they would have drove back home and they would have never experienced you know what that's like right but, so anybody out there if you want to go you know catch a cook go to the blind tiger <laughs> i was I mean, glad to hear that they did that <laughs> and i'm and i'm glad they did that because again uh you know you're talking with me and i'm from another culture what if i told you that that is the standard that's what, yeah ex- that's all you do right you don't freeze fish that's a no, sin right my, my, <laughs> i got uh two younger brothers and they're going on a fishing trip um uh, tomorrow f- from cyprus to mainland greece it's like a 30 minute flight and they're going to go there and they're going to spend a week fishing and they will they don't they're barely taking any money with them to eat because everywhere they go in every location, fish, yeah. they're going to catch fish. They know they're going to catch some fish, enough for them to eat. And then they go to the restaurant, and the restaurant will cook it. And they welcome that because they know the fish is fresh. You pay for the service for the mm-hmm. restaurant to cook the fish for you. But then you know you're eating your fish. You're on vacation. You're not going to yeah. take a grill with you and do all that kind of right. stuff. And you don't want to take fish out that you just want to <laughs> randomly give. But you want to eat what you catch because right. it's delicious, right? It's, delicious, it's healthy. Yeah. It's healthy. It's delicious. Yeah. So they got all these restaurants lined up that are, I'm not going to lie to you, holes in the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad they do stuff like that uh, in this country too. That's why I like living in, you know, in the Gulf <laughs> of Mexico because the there's a lot yeah. of that going on. And for me from another country to adjust, and everybody asks me, how did you adjust? Are there too many differences? Nope. There's, <laughs> I'm, I'm pleased to say that in my over 20 years at USM, I've made a lot of friends, and I see a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap in the cultures really? uh, between here and where I'm from. That's why when I'm here and I work here, I feel at home. Yeah. Even though my home yeah. is 18 flight hours away, I feel at home here. Yeah. You know, I would raise my kids here. I was going to ask you what you thought of, like, uh, the Gulf Coast as a whole, as an estuary when you first got here. I mean, that's it's a pretty abundant place from, you know, comparatively. I was, <laughs> I was you know, and I came from Hawaii, right? Yeah, yeah. So people are going to think I'm weird, and I, maybe I am. But when I came from Hawaii and um, I started, like, getting used to being down here, when I first saw the color of the water – because yeah. in Hawaii the water's blue. I could go free diving like yeah. in an afternoon. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and you're from Greece too. <laughs> I was a little. I was a little like, oh man. Mm-hmm. And then you know what happened? Um, the second day I was here, somebody said, oh man, you know the fishing here is great. 
And I'm like, oh, the fishing's great? Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> we were uh, at the research lab, the old campus that still is here at the end of Halstead Street, um, all right on the all right on the water. We walked out on the pier, and he gave me one of his fishing rods, and I threw a line out, and I caught a trout. <laughs> okay. First time, Look, right? I, I had a hard time going back to Hawaii. Really? <laughs> I'm not lying, because the fishing here was so great. Yeah. We, we had people that I stayed here the duration of the Red Snapper project when it was going on, and we had people that would come for a week and then go back to Hawaii. They would come here, and they were fighting over who was going to come here because I would email them random pictures of fish <laughs> that we were catching here. Yeah. When those folks came here from Hawaii, they did not want to leave. Really? That's how good it was here. That's yeah. how good the fishing still is. Mm -hmm. That's how diverse it was. You know, you can walk up to basically any shoreline and cast the line. I mean, they were getting happy they were catching hardhead catfish. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't believe that they had a fish on every cast. Yeah. And they were catching catfish. And that's so awesome to hear somebody like a waterman like yourself from Greece to say that about the fishery here. Because, like, the fishery here and, you know, off Louisiana, obviously, I'm a guide there. But, like, you know, I've traveled a little bit in, you know, my young time. And I've seen other places, but nobody, no place really compares to the Gulf of Mexico or what we have as far as estuaries goes around here. Right. And to see somebody like yourself just kind of, you know, yeah. <laughs> say that as well, look, you know, it, you know, it really is an, is an impressive fishery. When my family comes here and we go take the kids out and they'll catch like croaker, yeah. you know, uh, well, you and I would probably be more in sync to turn those croaker into live bait, right? And go catch something bigger. Oh, no, man. When my parents were here, <laughs> they want them, my huh? dad would, like, fill half a cooler full of croaker. And then he'd uh, pull the gills and the guts out and do a little bit of scaling. And he'd batter them up <laughs> in some uh, Louisiana uh, uh, boil or batter. Saturday and something like And that. then uh, throw them in the skillet. And I'm telling you, now I know why fish like croaker. Yeah. To the point that I got my mother-in-law to where she's asking me now for croaker. <laughs> so we go to like the closest bridge and, uh, you know, size four hooks and cut pieces of shrimp and the kids will fill half a cooler with croaker and white trout and, you know, pop I drum. I remember eating them as a kid, man. Those oh, things yeah? are pretty good. Yeah, pretty tasty. Yeah, tasty yeah. white flaky fish. Yeah. But, man, um, I know we're, we we keep dabbling a lot, and this is it's been a really great podcast, but I, I want to get back to kind of like some of the, the goals or like what, what you guys are here doing at the uh, the research center. Like what what's some of the like the main goals that you guys are trying, and what's some of the more recent projects that you guys are working on? So um, the goal here is to – develop technology that will help the aquaculture industry overcome bottlenecks and help the industry grow. Uh, remember I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the podcast that aquaculture or the growing of marine organisms is one of the fastest growing sectors in the blue economy. So there's a lot of business opportunities here. Um, you know, so we help develop technology that will put the next best fish on the market in a economically and environmentally sustainable manner right right, right. Um, let's take some fish as examples you know let's look at the fish the game fish like red drum triple tail you know some of the snappers some of those technologies uh, a lot of other academic institutions have worked on in the past but here at USM 
we'll take even some of the old technologies that we developed and refine them and improve them so we can make them available to the entrepreneurs that want to come in and pursue aquaculture as a business. Uh, we have people that, you know, used to uh, process wild harvested shrimp that have now an interest on how they can grow their next product. You know, right, right. they identify trends in the market that you cannot find that information on the Internet, right. uh, no matter how hard you look. Um, so it's a fast, fast growing sector and USM is at the forefront of that growth. Uh, we want to be at the right place at the right time and we have all the expertise and facilities in place to accommodate federally funded research, um, state funded research programs and also the private sector. We have a lot of folks from the private sector that will reach out to us and say, I want to look at, I'm growing red drum redfish i want to start growing either speckled trout or pompano but i want to test some things first before i go out and make a huge investment on infrastructure to do that on my own can i come and lease space and uh you know while i'm doing that can you guys train some staff that i have on how to do this and the answer is yes and yes and yes um usm you know you see the facilities here like i said uh, a little over 100,000 100, square feet that we can put to good use here and help uh, the local economy. And don't forget, uh, some of the Gulf of Mexico states, but specifically Mississippi, is a very inviting state for the ag agricultural sciences that aquaculture falls under. Mm -hmm. um, we Just have the coastline makeup of it, is that what you mean? Correct. Not yeah. only the coastline makeup, but the structure of our local government. Oh, right? okay. Yeah, um, gotcha. So uh, Mississippi used to be number one in catfish produ production. Mm -hmm. Nobody could compete with us. When we started importing all, that, all the catfish that were produced cheaper uh, in other countries, we really hurt those farmers. And uh, yeah. we want to avoid doing that. Yeah. The U.S. still imports over 90% of its seafood. Yeah, no, it's crazy. And that's one of the things, too, that they're doing as far as, like, uh, I know I just had a, a guy my last podcast. He used to be a shrimper. Mm -hmm. But whenever they do it all the farm-raised shrimp, it's, like, it's cheaper than what they could go out there and catch Correct. it for, low, like, right off our coast. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of crazy to think about. But right. it decimated a lot of the shrimpers. It really did. What <laughs> if I told you that we have a manual that we can bring that individual that wants to still be involved in, you know, moving shrimp into the market, yeah. but not having to rely so much on the environment, not taking from the resource, right? Yeah. But producing his own shrimp, his own establishing shrimp. himself as a business where he can pass the business down to the next generation and the generation after that. Do you really think that there will be ever a time that we are going to wake up and people are not going to want to eat shrimp? Ever. No, never. It's never. Gonna never, happen. never going to happen. You're going to have to. you got to figure out a way to do it better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because the resource, the wild resource, is finite. You know, yeah. there's only so much space and so much time and so many, so much infrastructure you can devote. They keep, these shrimpers, you know, I feel for them. They keep having to go further and further out. Yeah. They have to rely on, you know, what's the freshwater input going to be? What's the pollution levels going to be? Am I going to have a good year? Am I going to have a bad year? Yeah create more financial stability so they can take this technology and shrimp production and run with it yeah. and put themselves in a position that they can support their families for generations. Yeah. There's yeah. like third, fourth generation shrimp farmers in Texas, yeah. right? Yeah. 
you know, maybe they started off harvesting shrimp from the wild. Maybe these guys saw an opportunity. We're here to make sure that the opportunity is still there. If yeah. you look at a graph and, you know, we can share this information with the public. And if they want any of this information, um, they can feel free to reach out to us. There's a global demand for seafood that is on the rise yeah. because it's a healthier source of protein. Mm -hmm. But if you look at wild capture fisheries, all fisheries, you know, uh, the shrimp, the fishes, the uh, oysters, they're kind of stagnant mm -hmm. because there's only so much space yeah, out there that so produces, do, right? right? Yeah. So with that stagnant trend on the wild capture fisheries and the increased demand for that healthier protein, that deficit between those two numbers has to come from somewhere. And yeah. the answer to that is culturing the product. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But what do you say for like as to the future of uh, commercial fishing uh, along the coastline? Like, do you think that we should like right now the way it works is, you know, certain groups are allocated, uh, you know, shares of stock and they mm -hmm. go out there and then they go harvest these shares of stock and, you know, they make money off of that. Like, I, I, I want to say this because I've said it a lot on the podcast, just so you know that where I'm coming from. And kind of my mindset is like I th I feel like we should local localize the natural resource. So like if don't give anybody more of a uh, advantage over like nobody can keep any more than anybody else. And if somebody wants to in turn sell that fish to a local restaurant, they should be a very simple license. But they can't keep any more than anybody else. And it and in turn you would try and like localize the resource that's there. Now. Because just from moving forward, say that we do get to a point where we're, you know, producing a lot of fish through farming, like that's, that would be awesome. The way we could, you know, f feed people that don't live on the water, they still get fish and yeah. the local resource is still there for us to keep using. Right. Yeah. And so what do you think about that? So again, with the natural resources, no matter how they're allocated, mm -hmm. you only have a finite amount of that resource that you can harvest. Well, you say that, but there's no there's no level of sustainability because I mean, if you have a uh, you know two year old red like every year I'm harvesting a two year old redfish, mm -hmm. then that's sustainable, right? But your demand keeps increasing, and if you harvest more, then what do you think is going to happen to the natural resource? If more people are allowed to go out there and harvest, what do you think is going to happen to that resource? Right, it would be depleted, right? But like the a lot of the ways that we like. Uh, a lot of the regulations that are put on fish, like um, you can keep like, you know, 10 flounder or you can keep like, or groupers are really good one. Like a lot of people say that, you know, you can keep four grouper per person. So you can keep like 20 something grouper on a boat, but you can only keep two red snapper. You know what I mean? I, I would like to see our recreational anglers get to a point where like y too much is too much. Stop trying to guess how many are out there. If it's too much, it's too much. You see what I'm saying? Like, like, yeah. cause I, I've, I, I've seen some days people will come in with, I'm not kidding you, like 15 yellowfin tuna mm -hmm. and 60 mangrove snapper, a limited red snapper. And they might've caught some cobias too. Like you'll see board shots like that come out of Louisiana. And that's all within the legal realm because somebody wants to say that there's enough of this fish that they, people can keep doing that. But, like, if you could get everybody to say that, like, all right, what is too much? You know what I mean? It's, like, I've always had ideas. What if everybody had the same size fish box? 
Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Like the sm- like everything would be, you know, taken out in a smaller. Do, do you think that the way that we manage them now is is the best way? I mean, I don't know that the way that, you know, the fisheries are managed now is the best way, you know, because fisheries managers um, use data that they collect to make those decisions, um, yeah. you know, and, you know, if you looked at anything recently for the great snap account, and I can uh, refer you to a couple of people that were intimately involved with that process, uh, both from uh, USM and also some peers from the community, and you can probably get a little better information from them on that. Um, but they use, like we do, scientific information to collect the data, yeah. to, to make those decisions, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not involved in the fisheries management process here, but what I can tell you from my personal perspective as a recreational angler is, you know, conservation-minded anglers never go and try to catch their limit. Yeah, it's right? true. Yeah. So, you know, people ask me all the time uh, when we go to, uh, when they tour our facility, um, you know, wow, you know, you got a lot of sea trout, you got an established program, um, you know, sea trout uh, or specs are the restoration species for the state of Mississippi. Uh, were funded by the Department of Marine Resources to do that work for spotted sea trout. And they keep asking the same question over and over again. You know, how do we, uh, what do we need to do to uh, be able to have more sea trout out there? And my answer is always the same, and it will always be the same. Put some back. You know, mm-hmm. catch only what you need. Catch what you need. Right? Don't feel like uh, if you fish 10 out of the 30 days of a month, that you got to harvest 15 fish at 15 inches every single time you get out, right, you know, right. um, put some back, Le- leave some where yeah. they are. How much should you really be able to put in your freezer? You know, what I mean? well, <laughs> like, and, and how much do you really need? Like, and, you know, and, and I've, if, I've disclosed that I give some fish away, Yeah. but I don't go out and say, you know, me personally as an angler, when I get up at the crack of dawn, uh, with my fishing gear and I get out on the bayou and I wait fish, I don't, get out there with yeah. the mindset that I want to catch 15 fish because I can because it's it's legally allowed right right and then I'm going to catch them because I want to keep two for me and I want to give uh two to so and so and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freeze you know a couple of pounds or maybe yeah. a little more for myself and, and you then should be able to do that and I think that's great and that's a big part like we should be able to go out there and catch these fish and 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 do that whole thing but I think what uh, th- I think that like the the root line of this argument is like for recreational anglers that are going out there and they're fishing is what is your motive? Why exactly. are you out there? Exactly. You know what I mean? Is it to fill your ego with this this giant meat haul of fish? Is that mm-hmm. is that it? Is that is that what you're out here for? And if that's it, you might want to start like relooking at what you're actually, you know, what 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 your clear intentions are. But if your intentions is to go out and on the water and have a good time with people you like to be around, and then at the end of that day, you get to you know eat that so fish that you let's, caught. That's that's, an, that's, yeah. that's that's the mo that's the real, you know, that's that should be the motive for all recreational uh, limitations when they're set. Whenever they're trying to guess how many fish are actually out there, I feel like that's a very very hard thing to determine, and it's 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 always going to be. You well, know, that's 60 an inter- mangroves is yeah. too much. It right, is. right, right. <laughs> and let me. That's an interesting thing you bring up. So the big question is, uh, the bigger question is to how do we, how do we overcome uh, us, you know, as academics, uh, maybe a little bit or researchers, uh, you guys, the uh, professional fishing fleet, mm-hmm. uh, the commercial fishing fleet, 
and then the recreation anglers. How do we all overcome this type of uh, thinking of mentality? What do you think? I think it's through conversation, through what me and you are doing right now. Education. Honestly. Yeah. Education. And I, and I think the educa- same thing. Like yeah. just through meeting people and, uh, you know, like whenever somebody starts to fish, it's weird how contagious mindsets are. Mm-hmm. But like I I'll, I see it all the time because I, I take people charter fishing and I got this 10 year old kid that should be on any other given day. He should be thrilled with anything that we're catching. He's Correct. never been here before. Right. He doesn't know anything. Right. But his dad has the impression that every, unless it goes in the box, it's not a good it's not a good right. fish. Right. And what else does his dad have the impression? What do you think? Well, that's another limit. Right. Yeah, that's a limit. Like he's trying to fill his limit. Like that's what that's yeah. what his goal is. And so then you see it in this 10-year-old kid that like he's not going to be happy unless that fish is going in the box and right. it's dead. And look, that's not what it's about, man. It's like not what it's <laughs> about, but you want you want people to to eat what they catch, right? Yeah. Otherwise, talk about waste, you know, catching a fish and then killing it and not even eating it. You right. know, that's even a bigger yeah, waste than yeah, it's a bigger and, waste, right? You know, I I personally try to uh, teach my kids or any anybody that asks me only take home what you're going to eat or what you want to eat yeah. if you don't eat a hard-head catfish don't take it it's part of the ecosystem it's there for a reason mm-hmm. right yeah. people think well, what's the purpose of this it's a purpose because you don't understand it it doesn't mean there is no purpose yeah. so the fundamentals here are educating the public the recreational anglers specifically that you know might feel that a good day of fishing is a day that I go out and I fill my box with all the limits of all the fish that I can catch because, uh, well, they can come and do my job for a day. And I can tell you a good day, <laughs> a bad day on the water is any, it's much better day than a day in an office, right? An office, right uh, yeah. For somebody like me and you, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, most people with this mentality feel like a cage, when yeah. you're in an office and you have to do work. So they take uh, pride in anything they do that's outside of the office and they yeah, cherish exactly, every yeah. opportunity to smell the bayou, no matter how bad it smells sometimes, right? Right, right, uh, right. Because it's just different. Um, yeah. So, yes, I think that educating the next generation especially. and uh, but, also, but also, like, there needs to be, like, a like – we can't it seems to me like they're trying to set all the limitations based on science and hopefully at some point we can get to a point where those limits can be skewed a little bit based off of what people really need you know mm-hmm, what i mean mm-hmm. instead of trying to and another thing i would like like uh, one thing i would like to ask you and what's your opinion on is like now we have a thing called snapper season right it's it's been there and like so you have all these red snapper that kind of i don't know if they just co- make, make it to reefs because they you know there hasn't been a season for a while and they they end up there but then within a month of the season or a few days of the season like tons of these fish are getting taken out at you know abnormal numbers do you think that it, the fishery would be better and sustainable if the season wasn't there and like you would just had like a lower boat limit instead of a per person limit so you would have like two fish per boat year round but do you, do you think that like because to me it's almost like we're tampering with nature like you're making a season so you have this influx and mm-hmm. then there's mm-hmm. there's none like what do you think about that? well again you know Fisheries seasons, and you're going to get a lot more information on, uh, you know, maybe fisheries management uh, when I when I refer you to a couple of people. But that's all based on information. So 
periodically or every so many years, there's an assessment of the fishery that's conducted by the scientists that know how to do this. These, mm -hmm. these methods are proven, right? And there's information that was generated through years and years. So there's proven methods. There's to proven methods. To correct. determine stocks. To, de to not only to determine stocks, but also within that stock, the structure of the stock. Mm -hmm. You gotta know what you're leaving behind, right? If if we, I can give you an example. If we uh, put in a room a whole bunch of cattle and they're all females, mm -hmm. you think they're gonna reproduce without the male component? No. You gotta have the right structure there. Um, if we put the cattle in an area that there's no food, do you think they're gonna survive? Yeah. Well, no. No. There's no, no, food, there's no food, right? right? They've got to have a few things right. to make it work, right? So, there's a, in other words, what I'm getting at is there's a lot of different components and different parts of the big, of the question and the answer as to how can you do this to make sure it's better. And I can tell you one thing, it inherently starts with the people that are taking out. If you, if, if my job here can't convince somebody anybody that you can culture the fish and create and if you want to be a business person and you want to eat fish or you want to sell fish as a business you can do it better with more stability in a recirculating system like a large aquarium um, and you don't have to rely on the wild resource then then there's something wrong right 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 and yeah. again it's it comes off of education we all have to understand that, you know, we have a finite space out there, the ocean. The ocean may grow, it may not grow, but for the most part, it's finite. You only have so much ocean. And you only have so much of the ocean that you can actually harvest from. Yeah. And, you know, y there's time, there's quality issues, uh, there's pollution. Yeah. So if people like eating seafood, and, you know, I can't tell you how happy I am when I see numbers that the demand for seafood keeps increasing. Yeah. And it's That's a pretty, good for you, right. It's it's good for everybody. Right. Not just for me. Yeah. Because it's another way where people can generate yeah. revenue, have a business, you know. The shrimper now that's gonna invest some time to pick up the phone and call us and be like, Hey, you know, I got all this land and I, I'm interested to see what you guys are doing at USM. Can I learn how to grow Red drum. Right. Because I hear that all these companies out of Texas and they, they grow red drum. Yeah. The answer is yes. Come and see us. You know, mm -hmm. we'll teach you how to do this. We'll give you the foundation. But you'd be surprised how much you're going to learn on your own if you actually start doing it. Yeah. We, even, we even have in their ways that we can help the industry grow. You know, some of the farmers that come to us, they want to diversify their production. They're already farming so they want to farm a different product we'll get them start off started off you know yeah. we'll give them the information they don't have to develop any of that information we've done the work yeah, yeah so we can give them that information get them set up bring them in touch with the right people if they're putting systems together yeah. and then we'll even provide them with a spawn of a species that they're interested to grow if they choose to do so and of course there's regulations around that you know, right. that the spawn, like for Mississippi, if you're, uh, you know, growing a fish, we have to make sure that we follow all the regulations that govern aquaculture, whatever species you're growing, and then we can get them set up. We can help them 
get, get there. to there. Yeah, yeah. And then they can start growing the product. If they still want to maintain the commercial harvest, they can do that. But once they start getting trained and getting accustomed to growing their own product, yeah. right, then more than likely they'll convert that investment to harvest from uh, Mother Nature, from the resource, and turn that into an investment into a more sustainable way to put the same product on people's tables yeah. with a more stable, in a more stable fashion. Yeah. Because yeah. they can, now they make the decisions, right? They don't rely solely on Mother Nature. They don't want to sell, um, they want to sell oysters between November and March. They can plan and do that. They want to sell oysters year round. There's right. a way There's they a can way plan and do that. Do that right? They want to sell a thousand pounds of trout to local restaurants yeah. once a week. There's a way to do that. <laughs> but if they go out and they rely on the natural resource to do that for them, you know, they're going to get frustrated. There's ups and downs. The, yeah. you know, the way Mother Nature works, you have some years that are good and some years that are bad. But if you establish yourself as a, you know, fish farmer, yeah. then you are in total control of your success and you take responsibilities for maybe some of the failures. <laughs> but all in all, you're in control. Yeah, yeah. That's really, man, y'all done some really awesome work here. It's uh, really interesting. I could tell you it was pretty awesome looking at that 14-pound trout. <laughs> I've never seen yeah. a trout that big sitting all there right. in an aquarium. But um, you guys have done a lot with uh, triple tail. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, educate me a little bit on triple tail, man. Like this is something that like, uh, you know, in in my mind, uh, as a charter captain, I've and we'll talk a little bit about conservation. But like uh, just tell us tell us a little bit about like triple tail, how fast they grow, you know, um, what you guys are doing here with them as well. So triple tail is one of those very attractive to culture species you know there's uh attributes what we call them about uh that fish that makes it attractive as a species to grow for aquaculture you know the number one thing if you start backwards you know the non-biologist in me it's got great table fare mm-hmm. it's got a great value a lot of people like to eat it so it's in demand and it's it, it it'll generate profit right people that sell triple tail as a bycatch probably make pretty good money selling it on a per pound basis mm-hmm. from a biological perspective you know it's got really good a really good fillet ratio if you look at the triple tail over 60 percent of the fish if you look at the fish at any size is going to be clean meat fillet right and that's great right uh it's got a great shelf life so once processed you know you don't have to sell the whole thing in one day you can have it where you ration it out and have it sold if you're a restaurateur over several days. Going further back for the biological aspects, if you're the culturist, right, it grows pretty fast. It can get to about a pound in, you know, or maybe over a pound in about 10 months. So it's got really fast growth rates. Um, it's a fish that's easy and quote unquote easy to culture. You know, why, how do we define easy? Easy right. is defined as <laughs> it'll it'll uh, receive the offering of food that you're going to give it. It adapts well to its environment. It doesn't have a lot of issues growing. It'll grow pretty fast. And you can put it in culture densities that so far very little is known about those densities because it's a species of fish that's 
maybe in the past couple of years has started to emerge in the market aggressively as a potential candidate for aquaculture. Mm -hmm. But to culture a fish, you need also a little bit more information and you need some stability in how many fish you can grow you know, annually if you're a business. So you need to have the spawning in place. Yeah. And a lot of the research that we did here focused ma mainly on the spawning of the triple tail in a controlled environment. Can it be done? Um, are there uh, physical uh, stimulus or stimuli uh, that you can change, say, the amount of light that you put in the tank or change the water temperature in the tank and get that fish to think, oh, it's time to spawn, and then they interact with each other, males and females, in the tank. You have to be able to identify who's male, who's female, and, oh, it's time to spawn, and then they produce a spawn. When they produce a spawn, like some of the marine species or most of the marine species that we work with, they broadcast the spawn. That means that the females release eggs, males release sperm in the water column, and fertilization happens externally. The eggs will float. They go into a part of our system, our recirculating system, that traps the eggs in a smaller volume of water, and then we can collect the eggs. <laughs> so we did a lot of work on that. Uh, we published... Um, a paper uh, recently, this past year, uh, Dr. Seant is the reproductive physiologist uh, we have on our program. It's called uh, First Data on Aquaculture of the Triple Tail, a Promising Candidate Species for U.S. Marine Aquaculture. So, you know, it's a great publication. We had a student that worked on it, and we've since this research, and even a little bit prior to this research, had a couple of private companies that were already working on the species. So um, work on triple tail is what I consider right now at its infancy. There's certainly a lot of work to be done, but the reason that triple tail is so promising is because it's it grows fast. Once you have a spawn, yeah. you can get the eggs to get to a size that you can harvest them with fairly standardized techniques, um, a little few tricks here and there uh, that you can use to improve. But standard techniques will give you some harvest-appropriate product that you can then move into the market. And right. the great thing about it is there's a huge demand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, ever since, uh, you know, things like the price of boats, cost of fuel, prevented people from uh, going to the offshore vessels, to the offshore environment, they start to look at the inshore environment. And if you noticed in the past couple of years, there's been a huge spike in the interest on how to catch triple tail. Oh, it is. It's nuts, man. I I feel like I'm a big problem of that, honestly, because, uh, you know, I, I'm a fishing guide. I like to catch triple tail. And then last year I was on a TV show where I caught a big one and mm -hmm. it was broadcasted, you know, yeah. through the whole country. And right. now I got a ton of people coming to me, whereas in years past, nobody really cared about triple right. tail. But now they do. And it's gotten to the point where there's more of a demand than what I'm like, I'm already booked. Right. So right. other people are going to go fish for them. Right. So, um, but that's one of the things that was going to lead me into, you know, like our next question is like my, about conservation really is how, how do you think people like me can promote fishing in the right way? And what I mean by that is, um, you see a lot of, you know, like what is conservation? Cause like you see like, uh, like shark week gets me really irritated because you know they promote sharks like right. conservation of sharks we don't need to kill them anywhere not at all ever you know and then 
there's you know a lot of people like conservation as far as blue marlin goes you know mm-hmm. what i mean like they have their whole philosophy right. on how to protect the blue marlin and then and i i don't want speckled truth guys um chris bush yeah. kyle johnson great guys they're doing they've done some really awesome stuff mm-hmm. but again you see the same thing right they're promoting one species in a way and i kind of want to what is the best way for me to promote because <clears throat> To me, that's not real conservation, right? If you say all the sharks, keep all the sharks, that'd be like saying don't kill any bears, but just keep letting them go. Don't ever kill any bears, you know? Is it? Do you think there's a level of conservation where we just need to promote, you know, a you know a balanced ecosystem and try to, you know, you know? Okay, you said a key word right there, right. balance, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to promote conservation, you got to really educate people on balance, um, you know. Leave some back. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't, if your limit of triple tail is five fish per day. Yeah. Do you really need five 20 pound triple tail? No. Absolutely not. And I never do. (laughs) You can, you can catch them and I can tell you how else you can promote. Um, You know, very little is known about this fish. And um, I hope that at some point in the very near future, uh, while you're on triple tail, you get uh, this gentleman from the University of South Mississippi, Jim Franks, who is, um, you know, spearheading and has been for many, many years now, getting information on these fish. Where do yeah. they go? Like, you know, mm-hmm. us in, on Some the Mississippi coast, strange, uh, here comes November, and they're all gone. Yeah. It's like a switch. You turn on, and you can't find a second triple tail. And then turn around, there's March, and then everywhere there's a crab pod, there's like a, you know, an immature or a sublegal size triple tail. And yeah. they're so abundant everywhere that you're like, oh, wow, what's going on? When did these guys show up? Yeah. So how they go, where they go, what, what are the triggers? Those are information pieces of the puzzle, if you want to call them, that are still missing, that yeah. we want to know more about. From my perspective, for aquaculture, knowing what happens with the species when they're not here. What yeah. do they do in the wintertime? Do they eat a lot? Yeah. Uh, do they do they stay hugging the bottom, and uh, why do they do that? Is it because yeah. it's cold? Do they eat a lot in the fall, and then they don't need to be fed in the winter, and they'll still spawn in the late spring when we feel that's the. That's what I've came to conclusion on my own, and I don't. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but these things they obviously travel from far distances because like I'll, I dive and I I can tell you they're not there. Right. <laughs> you know, when they're not right. there, they're literally not right. there. But whenever they are there and they're there and there's lots of bait around and you find them and they have, I mean, I've caught 20 pounders even this year that will have big, massive fat stores mm-hmm. in them, like five, six pounds of fat in them. Right. And it's like, that's there for a reason. Like right. they're storing fat for something. So I kind of right. think that they, maybe they travel for a long time and don't eat, you right. know, at all. But, right. um, and, you know, gathering that information for us for the industry or the discipline that I'm involved in, aquaculture, would help us establish protocols that we can use, like you saw earlier today with the sea trout, where I tell you within 151 days, we run our spotted sea trout through uh, fall, winter, spring, and summer, and then we get them to spawn. And then once they stay spawning for a couple of months, then we start running them through fall, winter, spring, and then summer, so we can get them to go through the seasons in an accelerated fashion using the physical cues, the amount of light we put in a tank, changing the water temperature, 
and then we get them to spawn on their own in tanks, right, and right. we get two spawns in a year from a group of fish, you know, and a technology, a protocol like that would help people that are interested in culturing triple tail to manage the brood animals so they can make sure that they have spawns of triple tail year round. Yeah. And that'll allow them to have year round production of the species. Right? Mm-hmm. So as the demand for triple tail in restaurants goes up, there won't be too much removal of the species from the natural resources because aquaculture will be able to supplement yeah supplement what they're doing yeah right exactly and then you leave those fish there now you know keeping fish and fishing for the species are two separate things so you know i release a lot of the trout that i catch personally yeah you know i i like to eat a speckled trout that's like 18 to 20 inches uh if i catch anything less than 20 than 18 inches i will put it back Uh, if i catch a big trout one big trout i may be done fishing for that day yeah because i have one big fish um i know i can keep the fish i'll keep it and then i walk out i might try to fish for another fish like a flounder yeah uh, maybe i'll change my pattern a little bit angling i'll try to target maybe red drum to see if i can walk out with a grand slam but you know for the most part i only keep what i feel my family can eat and maybe leave some for either the freezer or to give to somebody else. But I've stopped walking out with my limit. And that's the (laughs) conservation thing that we got to get the recreational anglers to understand. You can still fish for triple tail. You can put people on 40 triple tail in a day. Yeah. But maybe teach them to keep just two and then tag the rest that's so what I've can, been doing. And so I honestly get information on what's happening. I always set my boat limit. Like I try not to keep more than five or six usually. Mm-hmm. And the, the limit's like five a person. It's kind of absurd. But I've found that like once I'll get them to keep one or two and I'm like, man, we could tag this one. Yeah. They get into it and they enjoy it. And right. my, my job's done too. You know, they and you can incentivize they, the tagging. So yeah. if you have a young angler that's got an interest in, you know, this type of work or this science, right? Uh, you see when you tell them, and we know this from our experience here because we have people of all ages coming to tour uh, the USM Aquaculture Facility. When you tell them what's actually going on, their eyes go really, really big. They're yeah. very interested, right? They're very like a sponge. interested in the whole thing. Yeah. They want to they wanna know what you do. So when you tell them you can tag a fish and then leave your card, send your card in to the uh, Center of Fisheries and Research and Development at USM. And if they catch your fish, they'll send you, yeah. you know, notification where yeah. your fish was caught. Yeah. You know, uh, I know some programs, uh, and especially us at USM, I know Jim Franks in the past and CFRD group uh, has a T-shirt or a hat that they give to the anglers to promote this type of activity for us, it's great information. Information yeah. is all that we are after, like, right, you know. Right. But it also promotes conservation. You can catch a hundred triple turn a day. Yeah. That's not a problem. Some days, man, you're out there and you feel like you can do that, right? Because yeah. you see them in all sizes. And if you put ninety tags, ninety-nine tags on those, and then take the one fish that you feel this is a good size, I'm going to take. I'm going to take this home and eat it. Yeah. Right. But that's okay. <clears throat> we want to look. We want to promote. You know, conservation is not about not taking anything. No. Conservation is about 
doing it in a in a uh, environmentally responsible manner. We are the stewards yeah. of, you know, we are responsible for, if you expect to harvest better quality fish out of the environment, you got to do your part. Yeah. Right? You do. Right. If we, if me as an aquaculturist, if I want people to eat more seafood, I got to do my part. I got to yeah. make sure that um, I work with the funding agencies and other academic institutions and all of us collectively as a group promote not only the production of healthy protein and seafood in the U.S., uh, cutting the trade deficit that we ha currently have. It's huge. It's in the billions. Yeah. Okay. But also getting people, you know, making sure that the technology is there for them to do so. Yeah. yeah. And and that's that's what we do. You know, when I retire one day, I want to, I keep telling people I want I want to leave uh, everything that myself and my group here uh, and the USM group has worked so hard to develop uh, in better hands. But you know, as a as an angler, I hope that throughout the years that we've been here and with all the uh, younger generations that have passed through here, that the take home message for them is: if I want to do this as a business and grow oysters, triple tails, speckled trout, red drum, I can do this. There's a way to do this. And if I want if I want to do this, I know where to go. Right. Right. You want it set up for everybody. In if the I want to be the one developing the technology. I know where to go, you know, yeah. come to USM, get a degree, get trained. There's a great program here that will support that. And if I want to make sure that the next generation and the generation after that has, um, you know, something to catch when they go out fishing, because it's a great activity. It's yeah. a family activity. It puts food on people's tables. It's fun. You know, then this is what I need to do. Like, yeah. you know, everything they have to learn and get educated how to do that is going to come from people like and institutions like, like the this. University of Southern Mississippi, anglers like mm -hmm. yourself, when you have people on the boat, you have their undivided attention. Yeah, they look at you as you are. Oh, believe God. Me, I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> that some of them and the majority of them hopefully will take your advice because yeah. you're the expert. You know how to catch the fish. They also take what you teach them and yeah. what you tell them about the species. Like, oh, hey, we caught a tripod. It's tagged. This is what this yellow thing is. You call it in, yeah. you know, you yeah. give the name of the angler and the person that tagged it gets a report and they get the knowledge. Wow, this fish went, yeah. you know. I mean, one really good example of this is like whenever um, a few guys uh, years ago kind of started catching a lot of big triple tail out mm -hmm. of out of Venice. And, you know, of course, whenever somebody you, you naturally get haters, whenever somebody's doing something that you haven't figured out yet, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, what yeah. I mean? That kind yeah, of yeah. thing. And they wanted to say that like, oh, these are breeder stocks of, you know, triple tail. But like, it's not the same thing as a redfish. And that was one thing I wanted to kind of let the listeners know, because it was something interesting. It's kind of a mindset change, you know, as far as like, you know, th there's got to be a reason for what you're doing. There's clearly a reason of why we have a slot limit on certain fish, right? Mm -hmm. Like you got like, uh, you know, red drum and, and speckled yeah. trout and other states. The bigger ones you let go because they produce far more sperm and eggs. That's not the case necessarily for triple tail, right? It's a, it's a completely different thing. Correct. And we don't know enough about that. Yeah. We don't know enough. I mean, triple tail is one of those species that's so intriguing. Mm -hmm. It's so good to eat. It's such a great you know, fish for anglers, you know, uh, you know, sight casting for some of these fish. It's amazing. I mean, when mm -hmm. was the last time, you know, you got to go to like, 
South Texas where the water is a little clearer or South Florida before you see clear water where you're looking at trout to cast at them. You know, mm -hmm. you can do that in Louisiana with Red Drum. I mean, Louisiana is the it's, capital of the world, yeah, Red Drum. Yeah. So you see the bull reds and you can side cast to them. And that's amazing. What a feeling that is to be able to see something. So yeah. that's why triple tail, I think, popularity skyrocketed up. When people started realizing that they can just look for these fish yeah oh yeah it is yeah right it's, yeah it's a big deal and then too now i've gotten into this cane pole fishing and <laughs> by the way you are insane you are going to break your backs on that i'm just going to come <laughs> out and say that we caught a 35 pound cobia on this tournament and, and yes uh, with craig yeah that's and, how i got in touch and, with you is craig look, that's right craig, craig is a little older than me <laughs> and if i had one word of advice for craig and i hope he listens to this is maybe he's a little too old for that <laughs> I want to see him wear one of those like uh, a harness, waist, waist belts, or something like that. Something to uh, protect him. Man, I mean, I you know sometimes I pick up my child and you know my back hurts. So I can't yeah. imagine, but it's a great way. You know, by the way, in other countries we use cane poles all the time, right? all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know, and in Louisiana back in the day, and like honestly, it's kind of weird because a lot of the people that I'm learning this stuff from, like got Don Gaucher and stuff, uh -huh, like. Uh -huh. It's been in their family for generations, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just kind of yeah. like a – to me, it's like bow hunting or whatever. People are starting to figure out. You want it a little bit more of a challenge, so – I get, I get very excited every time uh, anglers create challenges for themselves. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's a, that's they don't exactly make it easy it on themselves. Yeah. It's already with the, with the uh, equipment technology out there. The it's already easy enough, man. It's already easy <laughs> enough. I mean, you got a reel that's got like you know drag. You holding a lever to rotate gears. To Thousands and hours of knowledge that you've exactly. people have already done all this stuff before. Right. You know what I mean? It's right. <laughs> right. Um, so when you when you take the step to make it a little bit harder, I think absolutely that is that's a good thing to do in the name of conservation Absolutely. right like Make you see like the bahamas like or other places you can't use a spear gun you yeah. know what i mean yeah yeah yeah. you only use a pole spear so right it's like that's a cool way to you know to do that but just real quick you know that the question started initially so like we don't know necessarily that like triple tail uh the bigger ones you know breed far more like for Correct. instance so you wouldn't necessarily say that releasing a giant triple tail is is necessarily the best thing to do but taking a bunch of like medium size like your your best those would probably be your best breeders right. so i can give you another example i mean um we don't know enough about triple tail and it makes sense and to most of us when you see a big fish you see big space where the organs like the ovaries of a big triple tail would be and it makes sense that a big triple tail would have big ovaries but you know, you don't know anything about how productive that fish is, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, how uh, often they do it. Right. So, yeah. um, red drum, for example, you know, uh, they don't reach maturity until the, the males are 30 inches and the females are about 33 inches. And it takes them anywhere from two and a half to three and a half years, sometimes more than that, to reach that stage of maturity where they start spawning and start contributing to what's being put out there, right? Speckled trout, will reach maturity at 12, 13 inches, at least in our tanks. We've sampled 9-inch sea trout, and the males already had sperm in them at 9 inches. Wow. So um, you can envision that a 9-inch sea trout starts contributing to the stalks, you know, fertilizing eggs in the wild. Of course, you and I discussed this when we were touring around. A 9-inch sea trout is just as good as a you know, a dead sea trout to another bigger three-pound sea trout that's spawning in the same area, they're cannibalistic. 
they'll eat each other. And they will eat each other in the wild, too, if yeah. there's an opportunity to do so. But it kind of, this is the information that, you know, leading to your previous question about how the stocks are managed. Understanding what's going on when these fish become reproductive will help the managers, um, yeah. you know, like the states, uh, the federal managers, yeah. make management decisions on the stock. You got to have enough of the stock out there with the potential to spawn that can actually contribute. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just removing and there's no mechanism, biological mechanism, to help the stock recover, right? right? And some of the programs that we develop here, the aquaculture technology is used to develop what we call stock enhancement programs. So if something happens uh, like an oil spill, let's use the oil spill as an example, uh, that impacts a fishery. We have the tools to produce fish in a manner that we're not going to impact the environment. In other words, the genetics on the environment. We're maintaining the genetic diversity, but we help Mother Nature get a kickstart on restoring the fisheries on its own. Yeah. So a stock enhancement technology used parallel to, you know, some management techniques or innovative mm -hmm. or creative management uh, protocols. So you guys do that already. Like you release trout every Correct. year. Like what is it, like a million? We, we've a million produced trout? so far 1.6 million because our program here is to demonstrate that this technology can be used alongside the traditional management techniques that the state of Mississippi uses for the management of the fishery yeah. and help the fishery recover on its own if there were ever a situation where the fishery um, you know, declined to dangerously low levels. We can produce sea trout um, you know, fairly consistently, What reliably. about just enhance it with what's being taken out already? I mean, is that... That's possibility as well. Well, that would that directive would come from the state. So right, if the right. state feels that something impacted the fishery, then of course they come to us. And there is a state hatchery uh, just a few miles north of here that works with us that uses different techniques like pond culture to culture mm -hmm. sea trout. And together we can work as a team and put, you know, sea trout fingerlings in the wild and help Mother Nature help the fishery recover instead of relying um, on years and years of very restrictive yeah. regulation to help the fishery rebound so we can go back to harvesting 15 right. trout It's almost day like a way that we're, like, we're part of the ecosystem in a way. We are. I <laughs> yeah, mean, that's, you know. That, I, I do believe that as well. Human yeah. impact, anthropogenic, what we call anthropogenic impact is by far, you know, more destructive than the natural impact. I mean, you can't honestly believe that, um, you know, pollution is less catastrophic or equally catastrophic as a hurricane. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, there's things that, you know, we even us as scientists don't fully understand. Yeah. Uh, we do understand that there is an impact for sure. And uh, we have a dedicated department here, toxicology department, that will investigate the impact of pollution. Yeah. To uh, wildlife. We have a lot of projects here. You yeah. know, aquaculture is not the only thing we do at US. <laughs> but that, that's definitely an interesting thing is like things that you don't really know. You know, like coral can spawn and they spawn like in synchrony and they don't right. know exactly how that happens. Like the environment has a way of communicating right. with each other. Right. And, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder how, like if, do, do 
can like if uh, for a triple tail for instance if you take a lot of out of one area maybe they just won't go into that area again mm-hmm. you know next time or maybe m- or maybe the next time they spawn they'll spawn in a way that's going to produce more so yeah. that the prolification of the species can can continue right you know what i mean Cause and right I mean, now sometimes i feel like they're a lot smarter than us like they've been here they for are. millions and millions of years so if they've been able to evolve for that long Who's to say that they couldn't evolve from us just taking them out of this one little area? I mean, triple tail are found all over the world, right? And so, mm, yep. Yeah, I mean, in every ocean, though, right? Is that not true? That there's uh, the Gulf States Marine Fisheries Commission uh, had a project uh, recently that worked with a group out of the South Pacific, Australia, specifically. Evidently, there's some individuals that were caught in Australia. Now, yeah, Australia, I've seen some pictures online. Right. So Australia, you know, they target other species there, and especially northern Australia, like Queensland and stuff like that. They're very close to... It's like, you know... Right. You'd be t- if there was, like, big piles of, like, uh, 100-pound yellowfin tunas out there, you see boats passing by, you know, where there's triple tails everywhere because yeah. they're targeting a different species. Yeah, exactly. They, so yeah. Uh, they're working on establishing if there's either the, what the status of other populations in other parts of the world are. Uh, I'm from the Mediterranean. I can tell you I've never seen a triple tail in the Mediterranean. I don't know. I guess when you do like a quick Google search, though, they'll tell you that it's found in a, it was a pelagic species found in almost right. every ocean. Like to me, it's kind of like, I mean, cobia, mahi, triple tail. They're right. kind of in the same realm, it seems right. to be. But would you would you say that like those species, they that they do, I mean, that it's a resilient species, right? They're going to figure out a way to well, no matter what, right? We got to define <laughs> resilience, right? You know, what is resilience in this uh, term? No, I think a lot of the species that uh, we as recreational anglers uh, target are resilient in our minds, but uh, they're very sensitive to yeah. the process. So yeah. um, we just got to be conservative. And, yeah, you know, absolutely. There, there's there's ways that, you know, <coughs> we want people to eat fish. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I spend, you know, an overwhelming amount of my time, my career, my professional time to convince people to eat seafood. Yeah. So I'd be lying if I tell you, um, you know, don't tell your your clients to eat triple tail. Yeah. As no. a matter of fact, <laughs> I want you to tell them to eat it. Right. I want you to tell them why you think it's a better fish than, say, snapper. Right. You know, I prefer triple tail over snapper, me personally. Yeah. You know, I prefer, um, a, if I'm going to eat a snapper, I prefer a mangrove snapper over a red snapper yeah. or even a vermilion snapper for that matter. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> When I, if I'm out there snapper fishing and I catch a Vermilion snapper, I get really excited. Yeah. Because we're like, ah, oh, and especially if it's a decent size one. Yeah. Like yeah, they're really better, good. Better yeah. than just legal. Yeah. Uh, I love those fish. Yeah. Um, so, you know, of course we want the recreation anglers to eat the fish. Uh, you know, fishing is a great activity. Like I said, it it's a great way for families to come together. It's a family activity. Yeah, you want to spread the love of the. Right, what everybody likes, right? But I want my <laughs> I want my children's grandchildren, yeah, to have to enjoy the same opportunities and enjoy the resource the way that I've had the, yeah, you know, honor to <laughs> to enjoy. Like yeah. I really, you know, it's 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 just a real feeling. Yeah, you know. Well, um, Angelos, I can't thank you enough for, uh, I would say, usually my last question is about conservation, but I think that's <laughs> very well covered. But, uh, man, I just want to say, you know, thank you uh, for letting me come and check out all this, like getting to see the whole facility and the whole thing, man. Like, it's honestly like a, a it's a really big deal to me, like personally. And I really appreciate you giving me the time and 
letting me, you know, educate the listeners and, and all that. So uh, I really appreciate it, man. It's well, I appreciate you reaching out to us. Uh, I really do. Um, you know, we at USM, we always enjoy, um, you know, spreading the word out about what we do. And uh, we're very honored that you gave us this opportunity. And I'm really glad I showed you around and you got to see some of our bigger fish and yeah, some of our cool. smaller fish <laughs> and see a little bit of the process, um, you know, and to your uh, audience, you know, if anybody needs any information, um, feel free to share our contact information. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'll give you my email. You can share my email. They can email me directly yeah. and ask questions or if they need any information. Uh, we do a lot of things, like I said, at USM, uh, including uh, building systems. Just recently, a couple of the bait shops, local bait shops, wanted to improve on really? their way or how to hold bait. And we work a lot with the industry that designs systems. So mm -hmm. I was able to uh, put them in touch with our life support system specialist who he and I and the rest of the team design systems for different purposes. So uh, we do stuff like that, too. Um, wow, that's you know, awesome. We're here. We're open for business. Um, you know, uh, aquaculture is not the only thing USM does. Um, so reach out mm -hmm. to us if you need anything. Um, I really hope you get... I'm going to give you the references on, um, you know, and I hope your listeners get to hear some of the people that you yeah, know, I hope so. about like, putting on your show. I want, yeah, I definitely want, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, I want to get some of those contacts because I want, you know, there's a big uh, entertainment factor to the podcast. I do a lot of stories and all the captains and stuff, but there's also cool. talking to people like you, the educational factor. Like for me, kind of the goal and talking to people like you is so that our harvest fish in the best way possible. And I can continue yeah. to be, you know, guide. And I want all the people that come fishing with me to do it in the best way possible. Cause I don't want to just keep spreading, you know, this bad way of doing it. If I'm Correct. not doing it the right way, Correct. you know what I'm saying? Cause anytime, like for instance, people say, why'd you kill that little swordfish? Well, is it really that much worse to kill a, a little one than a big one? Like who says, you know, like, and through talking to people like you, right. there's actually a reason as to why we harvest a small redfish compared to a big one. Or, you know, and the more we find out about triple tail, hopefully I'll learn the best way possible yeah. to harvest triple tail. Right. That's kind and of I, the goal from this. Triple tail know? is one of my favorite species. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're very excited here that we have opportunities to work with the species and develop culture technology for it. So I'm eager to collect more information that we'll be more than eager to share. Yeah. And uh, like I said, when you talk to Jim Franks, um, you know, every year we learn something new. And yeah. all that is thanks to anglers like yourself and also recreational anglers that have their own boats that get out there yeah. that uh, want to be involved in this in collection of information uh, yeah. that have a thorough understanding of how important this information is because they enjoy catching the fish. Um, so, you know, it's great that that's why I'm so very happy that you actually reached out to me and we got to show you this and we got to get the word out to your audience yeah. and uh, hopefully they'll share the information and anytime you yeah. have questions or anybody has questions when they're out there jot that question down <laughs> send somebody an email get an answer to your question you'd be surprised how responsive people are somebody like jim franks like myself when we get just a random question from the public hey i caught this today what yeah. should i do right you know or yeah hey, I was thinking out on the water with a fishing rod, thinking, you know, right, right. what if this? And yeah. we have a constructing conversa constructive conversation with the general public. 
putting the word out for conservation, for aquaculture, um, you know, what the process is and stuff like that. So it's great that, you know, uh, early on in my career, we didn't have all these tools. Right? <laughs> uh, and now it is a new thing, man. It really is to localize podcasts. It's a great. Uh, this is my third podcast. I did one yeah. with Speckle Truth and yeah. uh, I got a lot of emails and responses and, yeah. um, you know, even from people that follow Speckle Truth that are not in Mississippi and not even in this country. Yeah. So the speckled truth is kind of the, you know, and, and there's a lot of the reasons why I started my podcast, but they were definitely one. I listened to theirs and I was like, man, why doesn't Venice have a podcast? Nobody does a podcast in Venice. And uh, yet Venice is one of the hotspots for all the recreational. Animals, it is. Right? It is. Like if anybody like wants to take a vacation to go fishing and they live in Florida, yeah. I mean, that's that's where you go. I mean, exactly. Venice is it. You know, Venice <laughs> is like, uh, you know, the dream. It's it like is. on a bucket list for <laughs> people that are not even, you know, from this country. And you look at it on a map you got a big river meeting with a giant current i mean you can't find that anywhere else on a map you really can't and and angelos if you ever want to come and uh experience it i don't know if you've ever been down to venice or or whatever but if you want to take your you and your your kids or whoever you want to bring man oh definitely open invite oh we're definitely going there i'll tell you this we're gonna have to dive man i want to dive with you oh yeah (laughs) we can dive i can bring my spear gun i have a custom built spear gun that i built myself uh it's a european spear gun but um The only thing I, I kind of not excited is um, the cane pole and the triple tail. <laughs> you don't want to do that? Every time I see you guys <laughs> do that, my back hurts. Man, you know what? I got this. I back. wish I would have done that like 15 years ago. I think I would have been better off. Maybe my <laughs> son, when he gets of age, we can put him on a smaller triple tail, maybe with a cane pole. But yeah. it's just painful to me. And there's these weird things that happen whenever I, you know, with fish and everything, you have dreams. The other day I had a dream I caught a, a yellowfin tuna on a cane pole. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's, it's probably going to end up right. happening at some point. And this, you know, in Japan they catch, uh, they, uh, they person big schools of skipjacks and they use the uh, fly on yeah, the, I've on seen cane it, pole yeah. and they toss them in, right? Well, I can tell you, I've, I could probably name, I mean, quite a few days where i could have caught a yellowfin on a cane pole like literally would eat a cigarette butt next to the side yeah but why would you want to do that because it's harder i've already (laughs) done it the other way (laughs) it's back breaking hard it's not just i mean i've shot them i've caught them you know (laughs) do it on a cane pole (laughs) it's like uh i don't know digging a ditch and you got the the digger right there uh, mechanically (laughs) operated and you grab a pickaxe to dig the same why ditch. shoot why shoot a deer with a, a bow instead of a rifle well it, you know <laughs> still you it's know, harder like, right right, right. <laughs> no it's great um no i really appreciate you coming out yeah and doing awesome this. all right angelos well we'll wrap this thing up man but, all right uh, look forward to seeing you in Vince. you got it bud thanks for listening everybody please give us a follow on facebook or instagram at tunatown talks also if you'd like to book a charter with me You can do so by visiting our website at mgfishing.com. That's Mexican Gulf website where you'll find my online booking calendar with all my open dates. And remember, guys, always be safe while out on the water.